And then he asked me a question and I did not know the answer. And I had one of those, you know, one of those moments that can forever change the way you move through things where it was like, do I lie to him and pretend like I know what I'm talking about? Or do I just shoot really straight? And I chose the right path. I feel like David, you know, (laughs) and I, I said, you know what, Paul, I have no idea what the answer to that question is, but I'll get back to you by the end of the day. And I did. And it, and it forever taught me going the route of, uh, of humility and taking a moment to, uh, to dig deeper into your facts and to be honest when you don't know them is always, always the right choice in the wine world. Hello, and welcome to the XNMO Wine Co. podcast. I am David Clark. XNMO Wine Co. is a wine distributor based in Cape Town. The subject of this podcast is South African wine. We are interested in how we got to where we are today and where we're going tomorrow. Thank you for joining us. We are in the middle of a government-enforced lockdown here in South Africa, where the sale and movement of wine is at least for now forbidden. So to keep ourselves busy, we have decided to release a new podcast episode every day during lockdown. We are relying on the internet to record these podcasts, and it doesn't always behave. We have done what we can to make it as listenable as possible. Today on the podcast, we have Catherine Miles of The Sorting Table, a wine importer based in New York. Previous to starting with The Sorting Table, Kat spent 20 years with Broadbent Selections and in that time helped them expand their South African portfolio consisting of Warwick and Villafonte to include such names as Arlite, Bardenhorst, Beeslar, Beaumont, Sardi, Savage, Storm and others. Kat has been a frequent visitor to South Africa over many years and knows many of the producers very well. She has seen the recent development of the South African wine scene from an outsider's perspective. It is this that I wanted to talk to her about and also get her views on how South Africa as a wine country is seen by the trade and the drinking public in the US. Kat and I had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it and find it useful. I give you Kat Miles. I'm joined today with Catherine Miles. Hi, Catherine. Hi, David. How are you? I'm great. Day 28 of lockdown in the United States in uh, Hunterdon County, New Jersey, hanging in there with teenagers and dogs and lots of coffee. Living the dream. <laughs> Living the dream. Well, as long as you've got coffee and wine, you know, everything else is uh, non-essential, I would have thought. Exactly. Coffee, wine, and chickens. So so we're one of the lucky ones. There's some yeah, nice. There's some okay. Chicken and egg shortages in the U.S., apparently. Oh, really? <laughs> and there's going to be chicken and egg shortages uh, at your property soon? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the word gets out. For those who don't know you, maybe just give us a brief rundown of your life in wine and then take it from there. Absolutely. I graduated from the University of Mississippi and had been waiting tables and working in restaurants and quickly decided that I was interested in, in continuing to, to stay in that field. And once once I graduated, I went on to graduate school and trying to make ends meet, was waiting tables at a fine dining restaurant that, that moved me into the general manager position in about 12 months. And one of my jobs there was maintaining the wine list that was, it was about 25 American-based wineries, lots of like Behringer White Zinfandel and Cake Bread, Camus Conundrum, things like that. And I became obsessed with that part of my job and would drive all over the Southeast, places like New Orleans, which has a really big love affair with French wines and Memphis, Tennessee and places like that. And then one day I had a really crappy day at the restaurants and called a wine importer that I had bought a lot of wine from called Bartholomew Broadbent. He offered me a job. I moved to New York with my husband, who I had just married. He was a, a novelist and a writer and a journalist. He just signed with an agency in Manhattan, so it made sense as like young newlyweds. And I spent the next 20 years working for Bartholomew Broadbent and Broadbent Selection. So it was it was quite a ride. I was a, a Mississippian who landed in the big city. I had never even been to New York when I took the job, actually. 
and like quickly got out there with a bag on my shoulder. The two pivotal moments for me, one was the first winemaker that was sent to work with me in 2001 was Serge Chauchard from Chateau Muzar. That alone was like a, a major turning point. He just became one, if not the most influential humans in my wine world. You know, he was really a mentor. And I spent, until his death, um, I spent two weeks, twice a year traveling with him all over the United States. It was amazing time. And in the beginning, you know, always when things are new, it was a lot of, of exploring wines with him, long lunches, figuring out how we were going to tell the story of Chateau Muzar. That, that was a big win. And then one of the first people that I called on in New York City was Paul Greco, who at the time was the wine director at Gramercy Tavern. I remember he would line everyone up at the end of the bar at Gramercy and, you know, always dressed impeccably, very serious, not in a rush, but but not not ever slow, if you will. And and I remember Paul, I, I, I poured wines for him, mostly Portuguese wines at the time from uh, Jose Maria Fonseca, the Periquitas, and then some of the Casa Farinha red wines and then the, the ports, like the Duque de Baganza. And I remember Paul, I started to talk and he just looked up over his glasses and kind of said, like, don't talk. I'll ask questions when I want, when I want to, when I want to know something, I'll ask you, <laughs> which was terrifying. If, I don't know if you've ever met Paul, but he can be a really big presence. And then he asked me a question and I did not know the answer. And I had one of those you know, one of those moments that can forever change the way you move through things where it was like, do I lie to him and pretend like I know what I'm talking about? Or do I just shoot really straight? And I chose the right path. I feel like David, you know, and I, I said, you know what, Paul, I have no idea what the answer to that question is, but I'll get back to you by the end of the day. And I did. And it, and it forever taught me going the route of, uh, of humility and taking a moment to, uh, to dig deeper into your facts and to be honest when you don't know them is always, always the right choice in the wine world because it's an infinite sea of knowledge, you know? Yeah, I think every service person has that at some point in terms of that choice to make. Gloss over the fact that they don't know and maybe make something up or be a little sort of dismissive or, or um, not very accurate with their answer or, and they might get away with it for years and then... I as you say, Absolutely. at some point you're going to get found out. And how you react to that is, I think, as you say, it will uh, it really determines your your professional sort of out, outlook and philosophy going forward. One hundred percent. It was it was they were two they were two really uh, important important moments in, in mm. my in my wine career. And I mean, to this day, Paul Greco is still one of my closest friends and and a confidant and someone that I really rely on. And I feel fortunate. And Serge was as well. I know I know you got to meet Serge at the Swartland Revolution some years ago, which was actually the last time I ever saw him. He was driving away, um, and I was standing on the porch with all the guys and girls, you know, waving at him, which was it's kind of a bizarre a bizarre thing to think about. Yeah, he passed away not long after that, didn't he? Yeah. I think it was a month later, really, like six yeah, weeks. weeks. Yeah. Why I wanted to talk to you particularly, other than you're good to talk to, is to talk about uh, South African wine in the US as from your experience. So obviously for with Broadbent Selections, you had quite a, a big range of South African wine to work with. You've recently moved to the sorting table. Maybe just tell us about what you're doing there. Yeah, so the sorting table created an executive position. So I'm part of the executive team and there's four of us. And uh, I think my role will be multifaceted in that I'll have the opportunity to really guide the winemakers from all over the globe. They have a pretty heavy, the sorting table's portfolio is, is really strong in Burgundy and 
in Italy. There's you know, beautiful champagnes. And Neil Ellis wines from Stellenbosch in South Africa as well, which is is exciting for me. The sorting table, I'll, I'll really do a lot of holding the hands of the winemakers when they come into the market and making sure that they get in front of the right press people and that, that we're really making sure their time is well spent. But also, I'll get to build some portfolios from around the globe and you know be a, be a, a part of, of the image overall of making sure that the feel of the sorting table um, is is true and that the wines that are are being vetted to bring into the portfolio kind of have the integrity that the organization is looking for, which is exciting for me. They were very like-minded with regards to the kinds of growers and winemakers that they like to work with. So that's exciting. In the US, there is um, what they call a three-tier system. Just run us through that just very quickly for those who, who don't work in it every yeah. day. Absolutely. It's, I think it's one of the most challenging aspects of working in the United States. And it can be really a lot for, for, for winemakers and growers to wrap their heads around because it is so different than, than most places in the world. So the importer is basically the first level after the growers and the winemakers. So we go out globally and look for wines and people to represent and bring those into the United States. So that's tier one. We then take the wines, whatever we pay for them, we add our margins, you know, there's shipping, there's taxes, and taxes can vary actually, not just federal taxes, but state to state taxes. So it's really like dealing with 50 countries. So you put all of those layers on, and then you as an importer sell to the distribution network. The distribution network can also be just as confusing because there are certain states like Mississippi and Pennsylvania that are state controlled. So the state actually is the distribution arm. Yes. There are states like New York, which there's just many, all kinds of distributors, large distributors, small distributors. And actually it gets more complicated because some states have distributor importers. So those people will take two margins, the importer margin and the distributor margin. Whatever the case, once it gets to that dis- distribution layer, they then sell to our kind of, in, you know, our sort of end customers in the industry, being at retail on and off trade, retail and, and restaurants, who then obviously want to take it all the way to our customers. It, it's complicated, though. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. And every, every state is governed by a different set of laws. So there's a lot to keep up with in that regard as well. And is the, the imported uh, distributor um, relationship, is that usually a... An exclusive relationship, i.e. that one distributor will work exclusively with your products or you'll work exclusively with one, one distributor within a, within a territory? Typically, it is a pretty exclusive um, relationship. However, there are some states where legally you can only work with one distributor or the yeah. distributor has to rel- relinquish their rights. And then there are also states where you can do what they call dueling a brand. So Let's say a brand's been in the market in the United States for a long time or in a state like New Jersey for a long time, and they are unhappy, they move to a new importer, that importer may have a different sort of relationship with the distribution network, and so things may move around, or if legal, they may end up being dueled with what they call it. So it's it's crazy. I'm sure that there's um, some experts in the field that make their living of trying to decipher and and plan and strategize those relationships. Absolutely. Between that and and keeping up with the TTB government regulations, it, yeah, there are people who definitely have full time full time jobs just analyzing and working on label submissions and things like that. So, what yeah. I really wanted to talk to you about, maybe run us through the, the the producers that you were working with, or the main producers from South Africa you were working with at Broadbent. Right. So, I, I really started Broadbent started um, our sort of education as a importer with 
Zomalong and Mike Ratcliffe. So historically, Warwick Estates and Villafonte were part of the por- the Broadbent portfolio. That seems like a really long time ago. That was in the early 2000s. I moved from a regional sales manager into like a VP of a territory. And then eventually, you know, it was a really small organization at the time. I was mm. I was managing brands like Chateau Muzar and Quetzal de Crasto. And then I, I became more and more the face of the company after Bartholomew and would look, you know, head out into the market to look for brands and people to work with. And I met Audi Bodenhorst the year, either the year or the year after he bought the farm. And it was really clear to me that he he was a pretty special guy and he was going to do great things. And we started to work together shortly after. 2009, 2010, somewhere there? Yeah, I was going to say, I, I want to say we reached an agreement in 09 and maybe the first quarter came in in 2010, but right around there. And and then Audi would introduce us to people like I remember hopping in the back of the Bucky and you know going around to, to see Eben, who had Tegan Pasolacqua at the time working as an intern. Mm-hmm. And you know we would start a conversation with Eben, who was really disenchanted with the United States at the time. And he joined the portfolio. Audi introduced us to Sebastian Beaumont and SAS joined the portfolio. I had a colleague that I worked with named Greg Turkins, who had really built the vineyard brands portfolio. So he had a pretty strong hold in South Africa as well. And he knew people like Hannes Storm, who joined the portfolio. Christopher Bates, who is a master sommelier here in the Finger Lakes region, introduced us to Chris Allheight. Chris Allheight joined, you know, Butch joined the portfolio. We met Marilise Neiman when she was oh. at Beaumont. And then yeah. when she struck out on her own, you know, it was pretty exciting to to work with Memento and and Jocelyn Hogan joined the portfolio after um, Chris Allheight introduced us. Duncan Savage was one of the first folks after Audie and Eben and Sebastian to join. So it really was a dynamic, por- I mean, it's to, it still is today. It's a dynamic portfolio of, of just really great, great people who are making authentic and, and true wines. Devetsov in and Delaire Graf were two other, a little bit larger, but two other really important, you know, Broadbent's done a great job with Limestone Hill in the United States. It's been, uh, we love our Chardonnay in the US. So it's been a really good, a good one as well. Very cool. And you've got Bieslar as well. Yeah. And uh, Greg and, and, and Aubrey knew oh. each other from Vineyard Brand Days at Canon Cop. And I think Aubrey wanted to sort of, you know, have Bieslar shine in a little bit of a different light. It's super tiny. Bieslar is, is beloved when people can get their hands on it. <laughs> well, obviously, over that period of time from, from 2010 to when you left earlier this year, that's 10 years. It's a massive amount of growth in terms of numbers of producers you're working with in South Africa. So I'm assuming there was a big demand for it, or was it more just demand for a certain style of wine at the right price? Or why was there such great would, growth? Well, other, than, I would say, uh, other than you're just a pack of legends and you're very good at your jobs. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, I hope that was part of it. I think South Africa is an exciting category. So for those of us who have spent so much time learning and drinking and experiencing the wines, it's a no-brainer. Like it's there, it's it's without a question one of the like highest quality value ratio ones, I think, on the planet, particularly at this moment in, in time. So it, it makes a lot of sense as a, as, a, as a part of the industry to want to celebrate all these really special, beautiful winemakers and wines. I think the United States, we've definitely seen great growth in the category. We've seen great excitement around the category. I will say it's probably been frustrating for some of the winemakers 
who want to see the category grow even more because while we as an industry have been celebrating the wines and getting excited about them, I still think we have quite a bit to do to get to the end game, which is the consumer. We have a more crowded category. I mean, if you think about what wines were in the United States a decade ago versus all of the great quality wines that are in the United States today, it's there's no question that it's, I would guess it's two or three times bigger. There, there are two or three times more producers in the market. Yeah, so the category in terms of the number of, of quality wines and producers that are available in the United States has grown, but the space on a wine list or the space on a shelf in a retail store, I still think is lagging behind what the category has to offer. And that's a real frustration. Again, I know I've said this already, but I'll say it again. Like as an industry, I think sommeliers and buyers, importers, distributors, we all get really excited about the category, but I still think we have quite a lot of work to do to get people really thinking about it as a legitimate high quality wine category and not just things like the jam jar. When people think of South Africa, they don't always recognize the high quality wines that are available. And is that still the case currently? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think again, you know, you have to look at this country like 50 states and I'll give you an example of something that took a really long time here and it'll probably make you giggle almost, but Stelv Enclosures. I remember we were dealing with a New Zealand winery who wanted to move from Cork to Stelvin and we had to do, we had to like order 50% of our containers in Cork Closure and 50% in Stelvin because there were simply places in the United States that absolutely would not accept that self enclosures were okay. So it just, you know, there are parts of this country that just take a little while to really get their mindset to change. But I, I, I it, it is, it is shifting. It is shifting slowly, but it, it's, you know, you look at, you look at somebody like Eben or you look at like Chris Allheights wines and they're not inexpensive, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty spendy and we've got to get people recognizing that that value is is worth it that if you were to compare it from wines from other parts of the world you would find that it's they're actually probably over delivering is the part of the problem you think that there isn't just enough history of fine wine production and stylistic consistency over decades is that part of the issue you think and it hasn't sort of sunk into the wine drinking culture of, of america yet I would say absolutely that there isn't a recognition for the fine wine producing aspect of south africa yet at least not on a scale that allows for all of those wines to be celebrated in a way in which they deserve. At, uh, at Broadbent, were you mostly servicing or your distributors that you're using mostly servicing uh, restaurants or retailers or direct-to-consumer? What was the breakdown there? Direct-to-consumer is a really difficult thing for an importer in the United States, typically, mm. unless you're, you've really got it set up and you've got a whole separate arm to, to organize that. There's not a lot of direct-to-consumer that goes on. Um, at least for for most importers, you know, the main goal of an importer sales team is to service the distributors. It's almost as though importers provide uh, our distribution network with free employees, if you will. Yes. You know, there's, you know, at the sorting table, we have a team of people all over the United States and they work for the sorting table. The sorting table pays salaries and expenses, et cetera, but they literally go out and assist the distributor team. So it's a really important part of what importers do. Of importer, like the sorting table is a, probably about 60-40 on-premise, off-premise. And Broadbent has got to be close to the same, about 50-50 or so. It would probably depend on the skew. You see somebody like Devetsoff, Limestone Hill, would started more as an as an on, on-premise wine, but has been driven more into the retail segment. And you look at something like the Saudi family, which would be more of premium retail, you know, more more independent retail stores and, and a lot of a lot of restaurateurs. 
it really kind of depends on the brand too, to some degree, right? You know, Audi's yeah. got tiers that that can allow him to play in all kinds of different segments. I know from the from the producer side that they can almost their stylistic and their prices dictate where they will end up being. But I was just wondering more from a distributor importer side if there was a if there was a different strategy for both or if it was a really singular focus on one or the other. I think the way to build a brand historically, in my experience, has always been by the glass. And once you can establish some great by the glass and people get to, you know, no right name recognition, then the retail comes. Retail is is always where the volume is driven and and it, it really can make a huge difference. So you kind of, you want to be balanced. You look at like this moment in time that we're having right now where restaurants across the country are closed and having a, having balance is really important and so many people are going to be able to survive this this covid moments because of their on-premise i mean their their uh, off-premise um, relationships and placements which will be vitally important right now you know there are there are some places here where restaurants can sell they can do like a cash and carry thing they've sort of loosened the laws but the yeah. business is still going to be so much smaller just over that period of time, those over those ten years, those last ten years, where you, as you said, you've you've added a whole bunch of new producers in, on the South African side of things. Has the consumption gone up in the same manner, or is over that period of time in the markets you service, or has has the South African growth in? I, I'm focusing on Broadbent, unfortunately, because I know, I know you don't work there any longer, but that's obviously you know it's 20 years of your life, so um, that's what I'm sort of yeah. focusing on. So I, I apologize <laughs> if, I'm, if, I'm, yeah, if, if I'm if I'm yeah no, if I'm no, talking no. about the past okay. the whole time, but we will get to the future, I promise. No worries. Yeah, what I'm wondering if is did the, the South African wines in the portfolio that you brought on the producers, what wines over that period of time, or what sort of styles or regions of wines declined in the market as South Africa was ascending? What what were you selling in the in the first decade of of the 2000s that you weren't selling in the in the second decade. And from South Africa, is that what you mean specifically? No, no, no. Just in in in, in general. In general, yeah. I mean, not necessarily at broadband, ah, but just in terms of yeah. what was being drank, what was being what was being sold in the market. You know, at restaurants, at the retailers. Obviously, trends come and go, and and. Funny enough, I feel like we had this big Riesling moment, right, where Riesling was going to be huge, and it never really happens. I know Paul, Paul speaking of Paul Greco, he, yeah. he's a Riesling guy. Yeah. He, he would, I would, I wish that we could like tap him in right now and hear what he had to say. I feel like German wine sells, there was an enthusiasm, it grew, 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 and then it was suddenly over, kind of, you know, it like didn't yes. happen the way that it did. For me, individually, I think that first decade did not include a whole lot of shinning. It wasn't something that I ever saw. So this last decade has been like all shinning all the time, which has been amazing. I really didn't see shinning as as something that was driving sales or getting people as excited as they do today. Shinning is a really, I think, going to be a key component for the continued success and recognition in South Africa. I think, you know, things like, Rosé, I know there is there can be a glut of rosé, but I think rosé that category has become so crowded. It it was, you know, when when you think about the the you know, late late 90s and early 2000s when people saw pink, they thought of one thing in the United States and that was white Zinfandel, which yeah. has very little resemblance to the the beautiful dry rosés that we drink today. So I think that's been a big turnaround as well and then and this may be t- slightly off topic, but when I think of South Africa and I think of that first time meeting Audie and 
learning about the Swartland. And he and Eben have really driven my education along with Sebastian Beaumont. I would say that people weren't talking about South Africa in the way that they do today. It was like there were red wines and there were white wines and they were mostly Shannon. And most people thought the red wines were mostly Cab. And today it's like, it's really specific, right? Like Chenin Blanc from the Swartland, you see that on people's labels, Cabernet from Stellenbosch, like Pinot Noir from Hemlinarde. Like I think the regionality, the specificity that surrounds individual grapes and the individual terroirs and regions within the Cape have become much more important and and a conversation point that that they weren't. You know, that wasn't happening a decade ago. No, I would absolutely agree with you that the face of South African wine has changed almost to a degree that's unrecognisable from where it was in the sort of the, even the mid 2000s, sort of 15 years ago. So I was wondering if that was the, I mean, that obviously has to be part of the, the reason why uh, um, South Africa's um, or the Broadbent's South African portfolio expanded so much. There had to be room for the wines and the wines had to be decent and interesting, uh, which wasn't, maybe wouldn't, wouldn't have been the case had they tried to expand in the South African direction say, 10, 15 years earlier than they did. Uh, I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, you know, the, the, the sort of beginning South African portfolio was Warwick Estates when it was still owned by uh, Norma Ratcliffe and then Mike and the project of Villafonte. Those were kind of the two things from South Africa that Broadbent as a company knew. And so the, these, this whole new group was a very, it was a really, a really big shift from stylistically from those kinds of wines. And, and they actually both, you know, both both styles have a place in the United States. Mm. Pretty big country, and there's a lot of a lot of different types of drinkers. I might just ask you about some specific styles of wine in South Africa and how you think the market in the US is uh, is responding to them. Maybe the first one is. I mean, you've already touched on Chenin. Maybe the Chenin Blanc blends. Is that a difficult sell? As Chenin Blanc blends is a it is not really a a known quantity internationally. I think that is definitely a place we still have to do some work with regards to the price point. I mean, you look at something like Cartology, which isn't inexpensive. I mean, there's no question that when you put those wines in at least a buyer's glass, there's so much excitement that surrounds them. But, you know, they, they do come in at higher price points and, and people get a little bit nervous about that. It's, it's you know, it's, it's continuing to change the perception and to help people understand their value, really. The Arlite produced some wines above Cartology in price uh, that tend to be, yeah. you know, single vineyard, single, not, not necessarily all single vineyard, but certainly single varietal wines. Are they easier or harder to sell uh, than Cartology? They're hard to sell. I mean, it's pretty okay. specific. I think you have to look at your customer and, and you really have to target people that that are going to get it and that we're also going to help be a part of then moving it through. You know, it's, it's one thing to make a placement and I'm sure you've had this experience. It's another thing to see those placements pull through. And that's really what the, that's the ultimate goal, right? It's oh, no, to not just get put on a wine list, but to get poured in people's glasses. I was turning to um, Niels Faberg from Luddite. I mean, Niels is an absolute legend and I've learned a lot of him uh, since moving to South Africa because he's been doing this, for himself, you know, for 20 years. So he's right. He's got all the moves, you know. <laughs> he's, he's dealt with yeah, all the problems yeah. before. And he said that um, he can't stop sort of talking about the wine, selling the wine, not in a sort of an aggressive ma- manner, but until the wine's drank, not paid for, for the exact reason you just said. So we can sell it to somebody or you can sell it to somebody, gets on their list, 
and it sits there. They they're only going to order it again if someone drinks the wine. Right. Well, that's the, I mean, that's what we're all working to do is to yeah. put it in people's glasses. And, and that's the, I mean, I think that's the most rewarding part is when you see something that deserves that kind of recognition and something at those higher price points, especially, you know, there's truth in those glasses. And if we can get people to just take a minute and dig into it, they, I think that they come back again and again and again. Oh, there's no doubt about that. I just think a lot of people in our side of the business get too focused on sales rather than actual enjoyment and drinking and what the actual purpose of the, the product is, is to be drank and enjoyed and thought about. For sure. And, and what I was going to say, and thought about, like, again, I, you know, I, I always go back to Sarah Shoshar, but he would, he was selling a product that was, you know, you think South Africa is, is challenging, you know, think about Lebanon. It's like you walk into people's stores and they are restaurants and they would look at you like, you were insane for trying to pour them a wine from Lebanon, but he was always so patient and so specific. And, and at the end of the day, if someone wanted to have preconceived notions without ever having tasted the wines or heard the story or taken the time to think about the realities of it, he would say, it's fine. I don't want you to buy my wine. And to some degree, when you have that sort of approach and when you you want people to to believe in the, in the product. You tend to be more successful, right? It's like you you're able to kind of step back from it and allow people to see the truth in the lines. If you if you do if you do survive, you're very successful. But I think some people try and do that initially and aren't successful, and so have to sort of adjust their moves because you don't see them doing it for yeah. years on a year end because they just it's just not it's not just not viable. Well, the other challenging thing, I was just, I was just, you know, you got me thinking about another aspect of the United States, which I think is a real challenge. And it's really hard for, for some wine, some of the smaller winemakers to make this a reality, but there is something to be said for consistency in, in the U.S. market. It, it is a challenging market and it's not an easy one to work, but I will say that the people that I have seen both from my own work with them and folks that I just know that have been the most successful are those who dedicate a week twice a year or two weeks twice a year. And it's expensive and it takes a lot of, you know, energy and time away from farms and families, but it really is sort of that, that tipping point in this country for success because it's a, it's a jaded market. And you think about the global world of wine and all the winemakers that are coming through New York and San Francisco and, you know, Chicago and, and places in between, people really do connect with the stories and with the people and, and having some consistency and time in the market can really make a huge difference for South Africa and for the producers that, um, that have a bigger story to tell and, and that need to tell that story. You know, it's one thing for me to tell it. It's a different thing for, for Chris Allheight to tell his story. On, yeah, exactly. You know? And it's a different yeah. message that gets consumed as well, because they're, they're quite used to your voice and your way of talking and your angles and your opinions and your philosophies. But as soon as you get the actual person there and you don't have the, it's not the synopsis anymore. It's the actual book. Exactly. Yeah. Just, just quickly, just to pick up yeah. on what you were talking about in terms of needing to visit and have those two, three weeks there. Obviously the result of that is you need to be able to furnish the market and with a fair bit of wine to be able to afford to do that. There has to be sort of obviously that give and take yeah. for that to be a, an option to fly over there and spend two, three weeks there. Because the RAND, as you know, is not a great currency on which to travel upon. It's great for exports in terms of if you're selling in the destination currency. But once you get to that that export market and you're spending RANDs, it gets very, very expensive. So would you agree that there has to be a sort of a, an economy of scale? How, how does someone get to that point without visiting? Or is it, is, is it impossible? And is it a chicken and egg situation? 
It's not impossible, but it is far more difficult. And I would say, you know, obviously there are some smaller producers and some of whom I mentioned earlier um, mm. in our conversation that that don't probably have the volume to, to justify it. But I would say in the beginning, especially, or at some point along the journey, making the investment will pay off. And, and that doesn't mean, it's, I think the smaller producers would certainly not need to come twice a year for two weeks a year. I get that that's probably not you know, economical. But I would say making making the time to come, maybe it's a one week every other year or or something like that is, it, it is I, I do really think it's important. I think it's not just important for the interaction that, that you will have with your importer and by extension with your distributor sales team members, but also the U.S. press, which, you know, they, they really can set the tone globally and it can be beneficial, not just for what happens here, but what happens around the world. And I also think that like, like, you know, we just talked about telling those stories people, you'll, you create all these little ambassadors in your importer sales team and in your distributor sales team. And the more of those ambassadors that you have that can help you tell your story, the more successful you're going to be. It's the same everywhere in the world. If you spend more time in the yeah, market, it's going to, it as long as you're not an asshole, you know, you, you, you will yeah. see a, I mean, there are assholes out there who, who um, like, mate, don't spend yeah. any more time in the market than you need because you're actually doing damage to your own brand. I have certainly works with some of those where you're like oh no gosh sorry we are all booked that month yeah, yeah <laughs> like, exactly yeah um, but i think it's just something important to mention um for any sort of aspiring producers out there who want to get into any um market is to plan for that when you're setting your prices and your and your volumes and all of that sort of thing you know you will need to spend money to get exposure in markets if it has your name on a label or if it's your brand on the label then you have to be the one who stands behind it at the end of the day i mean you can hire all of the the marketing people the distribution people the um the importers you want but at the end of the day it's your product and it's your name on the line absolutely and there's really no substitute for that no i mean a zoom call is not going to do it you know facebook live is those are all exciting ways to get the message out but that time that you have in the market looking at people and pouring your wine is really valuable and it, it occurs to me that that's probably something that you want to try to do um, not you don't want to do that until you know your importer has some distribution set up. You know yeah. you don't want to put the the cart before the horse. Yes. Um, but once you know you've got a, a, a little bit of of distribution in the United States, then come support that. It it really will. It can be a turning point for you. And if you're smaller, it could be that you really find yourself in a in a win win situation. And yeah. you don't have to you know make that investment every year necessarily but sometimes no i'm just i'm I'm more saying realize that that has to happen at some point you know in the in the establishment of the brand and to plan for it and to to put the money aside or put it in the budget to make sure that it happens absolutely yeah 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 just have that that foresight money well spent if you're planning definitely i noticed when when you're running through your list of producers that there's not a lot of sort of cabernet bordeaux style wine producers on that broadbent list um, that you used to work with. Is that a shift in stylistic choices from the drinkers or is that a, uh, a shift? Obviously, you got Warwick and Villafonte originally, which were you know heavy on Bordeaux. And then or yep. was that the reason why you expanded in a different direction? Yeah, I mean, historically, there was always an attempt, and I think most great importers continue to do this to keep a portfolio balanced. You know, you don't want to have so much internal competition. You're fighting with within your own portfolio for placements, right? Like that becomes yeah. 
more and more difficult to be successful. It is a large enough country that sometimes crossover isn't such a bad thing because, you know, there are certain places who are going to get more excited about Bordeaux blends than others. Yeah. I think Delaire Graph was another brand that has some pretty big, um, some pretty big reds in it that Bread right, represents. Yeah. It's a category in the United States that's pretty, uh, significant with the domestic properties if you think about Napa and you think about some of the wines from from California that that can be really those big meaty Bordeaux style you know they obviously tend to have more oak and and more alcohol than Bordeaux but I think that that category is pretty well represented and Cab is Cab is tricky you know I think only recently have my eyes been opened and it's been because of people like, you know, the Cravens that cab from Stellenbosch is legit. It's a kind of exciting, you know, it's exciting to see it in a different way. I, I recently got to visit um, with uh, Warren Ellis and taste through the wines. And I had never really heard that story actually when in the first week of March, when the world felt like a different place. And um, yeah, I mean, we, we, were, we were at the Cravens house. So we had lunch yeah, there. Had so, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That that feels like four years ago. And it was, <laughs> it does, you know, a month yeah. ago but I, it's exciting to see more elegance. But I, I would say, you know, from a portfolio standpoint, point, being balanced, trying to stay balanced is is important. Um, yeah. And Villafonte was a pretty big is a pretty big player for Broadbent and an important brand um, for the organization. Pinotage. How much of your working week or working month uh, did you spend on Pinotage? And obviously, I mean, I'm a I'm a big fan of the Beaumont's Pinotage as a as an example of the sort of the classical style. There is a, a, a sort of a new wave Pinotage style emerging. But uh, talk to me about Pinotage in the U.S. market in your experience. Funny enough, the Warwick Pinotage was one of their best sellers. Pinotage and Savion Blanc back okay. in the day, and and Broadbent doesn't work with Warwick anymore after uh, Mike Ratcliffe sold the property. But Beaumont Pinotage is, Beaumont, I feel like between Beaumont Pinotage and Bieslar, they're like, they're complete game changers for people who, who believe that they hate Pinotage, which is kind of a fun, that makes them very fun to work with. I wouldn't say that either of them are um, setting the world on fire with regards to huge volumes, but yeah. they are certainly eye openers in, in the marketplace. Um, and, in a, and in a country that believes that Pinotage, you know, the U.S. is still absolutely convinced that Pinotage is burnt rubber and smoke and all of those all of those things that it can be. I mean, from a from a sommelier's point of view, it it, it was the butt of all the jokes, really. It totally. Was, yeah, yeah. It was well, at least it's not a pinotage. That was almost the worst thing you could say about a wine. And is that prevailing opinion? And it's and is it just the fact that you don't have enough of the wines that to spread them about more and more, or is it is it just a, a longer uh, battle? Yeah, it's a longer battle. I would say that when you can show people that Pinotage can be more elegant and and have more softer care- characteristics, then they then they you can change minds. But there isn't there isn't very much Bieslar, uh, and you know there's a decent amount of of Beaumont. But I think really there's still a lot of work to do with regards to not even we're not even let's not even talk about the consumer, but let's talk about the buyer. Buyers are not convinced by and large. That you know, Pinotage is where they should put their money. I would say that, like, if anything, if you if South Africa is gonna really change minds, let's focus on the things that are gonna find themselves like universally more loved. And certainly, Chenin, Grenache, you know, the Cab from Stellenbosch. There's things like that that I think Pinot Noir. Like, I think that there's definitely some some areas that we can we can be more convincing. Yeah, so talk to me about Pinot Noir. I mean, obviously you work with Storm, another producer who produces about 18 bottles a year. 
I mean, I'm assuming they end up at sort of higher-end restaurants and wine bars. Would that be a fair statement? Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the Chardonnay and the Pinot Noir both are absolutely, absolutely well-loved, well-received wines that still, you know, struggle a little bit because they are higher price points. Again, much like we talked about the Bordeaux blends, there's there's a boatload of Pinot Noir from Oregon and Washington and, and places domestically. But I think in terms of showing the world and the United States what South Africa can do with Pinot Noir, Hannes is definitely leading the charge. I mean, his stuff is just so beautiful. And he loves Burgundy, right? Like Hannes, yeah. like knowing the kinds of wines he likes to drink and the kinds of the kind of wine that I understand he's striving to make. He's he's really on track. He's doing some beautiful things. If there's a producer out there specializing in Pinot and they don't love Burgundy, that's that's going to be an issue. I would have thought. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Absolutely. <laughs> so it's not you. I mean, if you love Bordeaux, I thought that would be maybe a surprise. But the fact that he loves Burgundy is not right. Is not hugely surprising. I it's not thought. shocking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about Artie's wines? I mean, obviously there's the two the two main lines, which is the Secateur's range and the family wines. And obviously he's recently added on those little single vineyard numbers. Talk to us about Secateur's yeah, yeah. for a bit. I mean, were you doing a lot of Secateur's um, uh, volume? Is that I, I look I look at your brands from South Africa yeah. and that looks like the most the biggest potential for volume. Well, absolutely. And uh, you know, the thing about uh, Secateur's, which is interesting, is that they've been in the market now for, you know, close to a decade if not right at a decade, the Shinin has always been a driver. You know, the rosé was added down the road. It's it's beautiful. The reds are fantastic. There's a perception that the volume is actually bigger than it is, which I think is kind of funny because it has been in the market for such a long time. There's still room to grow uh, okay. in, in the category in general and, and with secateurs. So it's it certainly isn't, it hasn't reached its capacity, at least from my, from my perspective. But the wines are beloved as is the man you know Audie's spent a good amount of time here over the years and he's a good example of someone that people just they turn up I mean I think that's probably the universal thing for him but they they turn up and they get excited to see him and to drink his wines and and then I think that the add something like Secateurs is really complimentary to the family wines and the full vineyards because yeah. people there's already a little bit of history there and, and those wines have been really well received. And it's fun. Broadbent also represents Caperitif and the um, the Fourth Rabbit. So those are also fun compliments to kind of a round a really well rounded portfolio for this country. Again, I'm looking at the the Broadbent selection producer list. I see obviously you've got Sass from uh, Sass Beaumont from from Botrefiv. Obviously he also makes a sort of an entry level Shannon as well. Um, do you have you priced those differently to did you price those differently to um, the secateurs or was it just different wines of different different um, parts of the market? They are priced a little bit differently, but that is also coming from the producers themselves. Um, mm-hmm. SAS has, has been a really real success story. Uh, it was a start slow and build and it's and it's work. Beaumont Shannon is one of my favorite things to drink. It's like a house wine when I can get my hands on it. But he's he's definitely, those wines have been successful. A lot of on-premise, a little bit of off-premise. But Sass is Shannon, the price points, they're also stylistically quite different. Yeah. Um, but the price points, the price points are also a little bit different as well. How many years have you been coming here now? Ten or so? Yeah, yeah. So for uh, for the last decade, um, and it's been so fun to watch. You know, it's one of my favorite places to visit, and not just because I think the wines are amazing, but I think that the country has 
such a cool energy of this combination. It reminds me of like the closest city in the United States is New Orleans. It's got this, this mm-hmm. spirit about it. That's like, it's colorful, you know, there's always music and food and laughter. And there's like, it's just a really, it's a really, it's a really awesome place. It's been a lot of fun to see it, um, to see it grow and there's, change there's, over the years. There's usually someone cooking some meat on a fire within at least 50 meters of you, no matter where you are in the, in, in the country. <laughs> no, well, I, I always, as I always say to people, chicken is actually a vegetable in South Africa. It's yeah. a side dish. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, yeah. I always loved um, sending people in into in the beginning to to Audie's farm and and you know we 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 set up a journey for them to go from like Audie's to Evans onto Sebastian's and everyone every once in a while you'd get um, someone from the U.S. who would would say that they were a, a vegetarian or a vegan and those guys would all be like yeah but they eat but they eat chicken right yeah, yeah. chicken chicken's the vegetarian option yeah exactly yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had a, I had a great visit with Neil Ellis. I loved learning his story and understanding that you know he was a guy who was doing the sort of terroir driven specific regions far before some of the younger guys. It was a story I hadn't I hadn't learned before. And, yeah, he was the original and, sort of negotiant out of uh, out of Stellenbosch, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just such a great it was a great story to hear him tell and to to understand that you know before even you know like an an Eben Sadi and some of the folks that have been kind of now the next generation that's been out there combing for the right vineyard sites that meet up with their kind of what they're trying to accomplish. Neil was doing that. So that was a really cool story to learn recently. I've loved getting to know the guys at Restless River. They're pretty awesome. Love, love visiting Craig and Ann when I have a chance. I got to pop in and see them like right before I saw you in early March. The Cravens, obviously. And then also got to go up and visit De Morganson as well and Stellenbosch recently, which I really appreciated. There are so many, so many great producers in South Africa that deserve to, you know, have a light shine on them. So I hope mm. to continue to see the category grow and, and, and the, the people and, and places within the country that have put so much into their projects to, to really get the recognition that they deserve. And I think it's an interesting um, interesting listening to you on how the broadband portfolio expanded. It was all through word of mouth and uh, recommendations from Artie and other producers. It wasn't, oh, we saw their Instagram feed and or we, uh, we, we saw their ad in a, on, a, on a wine website or in a wine publication. It's all about the people in your network. I can say that for me individually, that's one of the single most important aspects of, of a portfolio. And, you know, I, I can't speak for <clears throat> what Broadbent, the direction that Broadbent will go as, as they move forward. But I can tell you that the, the portfolios, the sorting table and any projects that I have my hand in and that I get to be a part of, the people are vitally important. And it, it was clear to me early on that being able to stand in someone's vineyards, being able to see their faces, being able to share a meal with them was an important part of, of building the relationship and of, of seeing people's true intentions and understanding their projects in a way that allowed you to tell the story and allowed you to celebrate it with full confidence and with a lot of um, excitement. And those, those confidence and the excitement are important when you're going out to, to sell wine, to talk about wine and to, um, and again, to, to tell the story the producers on the, on their side i mean if they're looking for 
you know, to expand their brand and, and looking for the way forward because there has been a massive mushrooming of um, different producers in South Africa over the last sort of 10, 15 years. And, and they're going to start competing with each other for places on importers' wine lists, and they probably already are. And it's, it's, it's going to be a, an interesting sort of battle. And it's, I say battle, that's probably a, a too strong a word for it, but a, an interesting sort of conversation that's going to happen about what wines you know, are going to leave the country at what prices and, and at what volume. I don't think, and you can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, I don't think there's lots of people drinking lots more South African wines every day, but there are lots more producers wanting to get in that market every day. I think that's already started to happen. And I think you're right. Again, it's, there are, ballooning mushroom is a, is a perfect way of looking at it. Like there's t- so many more producers available in the United States, but there, there isn't more, there doesn't yet appear to be, from what I've seen, more room on wine list or on retail shelves. And so that is, that's the challenge. And, yeah. you know, being able to, to stand out and to get your wines in front of the right people so that, that you can guarantee that you are the person that has that placement. That's the hard part. And yeah. that and that is where your team and the interaction with your importer becomes so important because, yeah. you know, we're out here on the front lines and, and we're trying to celebrate the brands and the people behind them in the best way that we can. And so I do think the time that you spend with people, I do think it, it helps. It, it become it makes it makes that job a slightly, slightly less challenging because it's challenging no matter what. You've got to, you've got to say like, you know, really this, the Shannon from South Africa, you should be buying the Shannon from South Africa at this point versus the Shannon from the Loire or the cab from Stellenbosch versus, you know, this affordable cab from Napa or, you know, what's the reason? There's a lot of wine out there. There's a lot of bad wine out there, but there, you know, there's also a lot of good wine out there. People who are representing from my experience, the categories of wine that the, all of the guys that I've spoken about and girls that I've spoken about today fall into, they all tend to be hunting in the same places. You've got to make sure that you've equipped them with all of the conversation and talking points and ability to, to tell your story that, that you possibly can. And if you, you know, the other thing that I would say when I think about it, if, if you're a smaller producer that can't get to the United States, see if you can find ways to get your importer team and maybe key buyers to you in South Africa, because there is no way to tell the story better than for people to be standing on farms and, and vineyards and experiencing all of that that country has to offer. Yeah. Experiential is way more impactful than education and learning, isn't it? A $1,500 ticket, round trip ticket to South Africa versus, you know, the amount of money that you have to spend to come to the States for some producers, that might be a better, a better route is focusing on a few people that they can bring to them. Thank you, Kat. There's probably more things that I should be asking you, but um, I'm conscious of not taking up too much of your time. (laughs) All right. Awesome. Nice to hear your voice. (laughs) Yeah, likewise.